0: Hi, as always, it's Darren from HackerJob. This week, I'm joined by Sarah Emily, Global Director of Recruitment at Hamboss. Hey, Hi, I'm good, thanks. How are you? I'm very good. Thanks for asking. So, always the question I ask at the start of this is for the guests to introduce themselves, talk about their background, how they got into the position they are now. So, give a bit of a, an overview, just in case someone hasn't come across your profile before.
1: Okay, well, it's probably worth mentioning that I am a recovering lawyer, I say recovering because we're always in recovery after going through something like that. <laughs> um, Fell into recruitment, as so many of us do, via an agency. It's quite a funny story. I actually went into an agency to work with them on what I could do after pursuing my legal career. They were a multilingual specialist. And then they said, how do you considered recruitment? And uh, well, the rest is history since 2009. So from there, I then went through a series of in-house gigs. And for the last four years, I've done a mixture of more interim, or short-term perm roles. Um, I think it's fair to say I'm relatively industry agnostic. I've covered everything from travel to fashion to, well, most recently in short tech, and then just pure tech that we use day to day. So it's been really, really interesting. And then my next move is into medical tech. So that's another interesting new move
0: for me. And I, I think that's one of the most admirable things about you, that you are industry agnostic, as you kind of put it. There's a lot of people, when you look at their backgrounds, they go from, I don't know, e-commerce to e-commerce to e-commerce because that's really all they know. Whereas I think what's very interesting about your background, and I only found out about it when we spoke a couple of weeks ago, is that not only are you industry agnostic, you are also location agnostic. (laughs) Yes. And you're, uh, how many lingual? I was going to say trilingual, but there may be.
1: Yeah, uh, so I speak four languages to varying degrees, but but the four that I would say I I can speak to a, a good level.
0: Nice. Okay, I can speak one, so one nil year. Um, so, I guess what most recently you were at Zego, and while there, the business kind of changed to really engage on the d and I and, uh, and you kind of moved the needle forward. So, am I right in saying that you increased the representation from 17% to, to
1: 36%? Yeah, it was well, it was 17 to 30.6% in under six months. So, um, and that's female representation in tech. Uh, specifically. So that's everything that is non-tech, right? So it's non-GNA, non-sales. It was definitely the area that we chose to focus on, given the fact that representation was really lacking within the female remit there. But also within BAME, uh, we moved from 15 to 24%. Also within tech, and then within non-tech, we moved from 12 to 23% within BAME. Female actually was pretty consistent. So female, we went from 45 45% to 45.6%. So didn't need to move overall too much. So yeah, I mean, and I think just considering the timeframe that that happened in with the the size of team that we had, I think that's really impressive, but it also speaks to the importance that the company attached to creating genuine diversity and representation in their workforce, how important it was to senior leadership and then also individual hiring managers, uh, because it really did mean a complete change across the whole organization. Right. So anything from, of course, top of funnel, but also to, what are you doing to interview panels do you have representation there you know do you make sure that we onboard people and consider whatever spectrum of diversity it is that we're trying to onboard and And how do we make sure that that's as seamless as possible? So really huge movements, actually, in a very short space of time. I think some of that obviously comes with the luxury of them being at the scale-up end of the market. So they're certainly not a 38,000 employee beast where I've worked prior. They were more like a 100-person small beast at 220, actually, at my time of leaving. So there's definitely some significant growth in terms of what was achieved there. But I'm just super proud of the team. I talk about this all the time. I post about it on LinkedIn all the time. It's probably getting a bit embarrassing for them. But no, I'm, I'm really really amazed by the degree to which um, they were able to affect that in such a short space of time
0: and I, I think it's quite timely unfortunately this won't go out on the day that we're recording but today's the international women in science day there we go. so uh, very timely and I think I saw, saw a scary statistic this morning that the way that when companies are talking about increasing diversity a lot of companies are talking about oh we need to do it through promoting more STEM courses at university. But I saw that the average diversity within engineering at moment is 14%. But If you look mm. at STEM courses, is 19%. Mm-hmm. So it's going to be a long time before we really see true diversity across teams. I think that there is a, a misconception that suddenly there's 50-50 diversity split in universities where it's not. So it's right. going to be a long, long time before we really see the, the effects of this. Definitely. So can you talk to us about the work that Ambos is doing from a tech perspective and the teams you're going to be building there?
1: So Ambos is an interesting one. And obviously I'm super new, so I'm still definitely finding my feet here. But I do know that they're concentrating on making sure that their org health is where it needs to be in order to continue with their expansion. So they're currently they have a consumer base across 180 countries. And so in order to make sure that, you know, all of these different people are serviced and taken care of and they have access to the product etc and that the the user journey is where it needs to be tech is definitely the predominant focus the interesting part i think about this in particular though is also that you need to make sure that the content not just the app itself but the content is as up-to-date as possible Um, and obviously medical research etc becomes obsolete pretty much the minute it's printed so obviously this is not a print platform but you do have to maintain how up-to-date all the information is on on something like this so There is definitely a big focus on growth, but I think at the moment they're at the stage in their their growth and development in terms of their their scale-up journey, where they're also making sure that they're hiring the right people. And so there's a really big focus on quality of hire. And that's certainly going to be what my team and I are going to be looking at predominantly uh, over the next 12 months.
0: So picking apart something you said there, I think that's really interesting that it often is the quality of hire that when you're scaling up a business, I think it's very, we could all go and get 50 people in, to start in a couple of weeks' time. But the reality is that if you cause so much carnage that it damages the business as it's scaling, that you probably will never recover from that. So it seems like a good approach to take things a little bit slower rather than just simply go, we need to hire 150 people tomorrow.
1: Well, and also what what do people base this on? I think a lot of companies focus on, we need to grow by this many people. Yeah. And that's probably true if they maintain the results and, uh, you know, the speed of their operation and the well, frankly, the efficacy of their operation. But what if there are improvements to be made? What does that mean for your end headcount number? And then do you still need the same number of people? Do you still need them in the same roles? Can you use technology to override some of these roles and hire some of these heads into a very different area of your business? So I definitely think this is a good time to do it before you hit a really aggressive number of people that then that change is, is far more difficult, obviously, to achieve once you're you know 2000 people, so I think making these sorts of changes under 500 is probably a good place to start. Um, but certainly quality of hire will be it's usually something that comes later in the recruiting cycle, but quality of hire is going to be uh, definitely something that we take a look at. I'm hesitant to speak too much about it because it is brand new, but early indicators definitely are that we will be using some of the experience I had with my previous team across DNI. Um, and certainly reporting and hiring enablement will also come into that. So things like your unconscious bias training, interviewer training, things like that are going to be part and parcel of all the fun things that we need to do to achieve some of the growth goals that they have.
0: And I know this start date hasn't officially started yet, but I think one of the challenges that is happening with anyone that starts, and I've had a couple of new starters, is working remotely. But I think what's interesting about yourself is that you're going to be working remotely in a different country from where you're (laughs) living so like how are you finding that transition before starting and and how are you going to get around that for the first couple of months
1: well I think there's definitely two angles to this right so there is the professional and personal side of it so when the last year I've been interim at two different places I started and ended them both remotely I've actually only ever met one of them in person um, which is still a bit weird to me. And then when I met them, they didn't look at all in real life how I thought they would, which is weird because we've been on sort of these Zoom meetings and stuff every week, but they said they thought I was taller, which was a really interesting comment. But anyway, so I, I think professionally, I'm not really too phased by it, to be honest with you. I think, you know, I'll start remotely and, and you know, the, all the results, you know, that the, that the team and I achieved in, in my last role, specifically as we talked about that in more depth, we did that all remote, you know most of us were new in August a lot of them started the same day I did and then we we still managed to to make some pretty major strides and so I'm not I'm not at all nervous professionally I think my preference or and I'm hesitant to call it frustrations because I don't think that's quite right but my hesitation I think comes from not being there in person it's more of a, a personal frustration because I know I will be moving and I know that I will meet these people in person, and this is now a permanent role in contrast to my last two positions, right? So I think my any kind of frustration is purely personal and the fact that I just want to get settled. Obviously, I need to move all of my staff, and so there's this personal side to it. But I'm not actually nervous about starting remotely or in a remote country because, well, to your point earlier, I'm a bit country agnostic as well. So not particularly nervous about having teams in different places. and um, certainly, during my time with Uber and Netta Porter, for example, my teams were all over the place. Honestly, so um, yeah, not not super nervous about it, but just eager, eager to get settled, get started properly, meet everyone. But you know, pandemic not permitting, yeah. we'll just find a workaround. <laughs> so there we are.
0: And I think all the listeners are now going to be wondering how tall are you? Because you,
1: <laughs> I'm only five two. It's really, <laughs> it's just, it's so funny. I don't know why it was just the first comment that came out, and and he was like, oh, I, I thought you'd be taller. And I was like, okay, well
0: sorry <laughs> <There I am. laughs> that's all I am <laughs> so another topic that led to some great debate last time we caught up was talking about the UK leaving the EU oh, yeah.
1: uh,
0: and I know <laughs> the, the impact of Brexit is something that you're particularly passionate about from a talent perspective so how do you think that Brexit will affect the UK businesses long term
1: this is not a cop-out, but I really truly think it depends on industry, right? Because I think if you're, for example, an FMCG brand, then I think you face many different complications. Or if you're an e-commerce brand and you're importing or exporting any kind of physical goods, you have very, very different talent issues from an entirely online company, right? So I think there's a few things. Uh, It depends on the level of talent, I think, as well. So, if you're looking at really junior level talent, I think actually it's going to be a bit of a struggle in the short to midterm, but I think long-term, as long as there is support for things like further education in terms of languages and the kind of pieces of talent that I think a lot of, of companies are a little bit concerned about losing, that there is an opportunity there to build something longer term. But I, I don't know, I, I think there's a lot of, of naysayers about sort of doomsday predictions I think that are coming from some sources and I I actually think long-term isn't the issue I think the the short and mid-term and all of the teething issues are you know where where we see perhaps more of an impact or an upset and I think if you look at for example people leaving university now there used to be more of an opportunity for them to go to one of the other big European cities and settle into a role there. That's not an option. I think also with the lack of experience, you're not really eligible for visas. So I think there's a short-term impact there on the talent itself. And the same the other way around for the companies, right? So if you're looking at junior-level talent, there's actually some roles that don't meet the criteria for sponsorship. So if you are looking for that level of talent, it will either already have to be in the UK or you'll have to settle for a stepper-upper role, perhaps with homegrown talent. Mid-range talent, I think, is a different one because obviously more of them are eligible for sponsorship of some kind. But then are you able to offer sponsorship if you're a much smaller company? There's there's this cost impact, right? And so I think when we were looking into it, you're looking at about 5K for a three-year visa for some of these guys. And so I do think there's some, some costs. And again, it will depend on the size of the organization as to whether or not they're able to support that. Or are they going to ask candidates potentially to pay some of that? I know that a couple of the fees associated with it have to be paid by the company, but the others could be paid by the candidate. Is that fair? And so on. So yeah, I know, I know this is a bit of a a around the houses answer, but I really think it is so for the long term. if we get it right, (laughs) that is a big if I realize if, if we get it right and if there is that education and again, you and I are probably of a, of a generation that was quite Eurocentric and that focus may dissipate over time from Europe to more of a global view. And so actually, I think if the availability of the right education and if the kind of retraining of the focal point could provide you actually with a very different viewpoint longer term. But short term and midterm, I do see teething issues. Great example. I received my new work phone and had to pay import duties on it. <laughs> so... <laughs> So there you go.
0: <laughs> yeah, we've, um, we've been trying to send merch because our engineering team and some of the talent team are based in Yash in Romania. Mm-hmm. And we've been trying to uh, send them their merch. And I believe it's still stuck in Big Rest. Um, yeah. It's stuck there for a number of weeks now. So there is obvious danger on that sort or obvious annoyances on that side. And I think something interesting you, you picked up there is that will the candidates pick up the bill of this when it comes mm. to sponsorship? What I'm wondering is, will it lead to companies paying candidates less because they're saying that, look, we're going to pay you less because we're picking up your visa? So actually, we're not paying any differently for this role, but you're going to earn less. So will it drag down the the salary of all engineers? Uh, is an interesting question, I guess.
1: Well, I think it's a really short sighted view for companies to take, yep. and like the attraction of working in the UK only goes so far. And if that results in a 5 to 10k reduction in what you earn, then there are lots of other tech hubs. You know, I think the Netherlands has, again, this is probably a bit controversial, but I think the Netherlands has actually really benefited from Brexit and the lack of planning around Brexit. Certainly a lot of companies that either had bases in the UK or are homegrown in the UK have sought to incorporate themselves within the Netherlands or Ireland. Another big tech hub is Berlin. And I just... Yes, I think it's possible, but I I actually don't foresee that to be uh, like a huge movement necessarily because it is a short term gain. Yeah, I agree. So I'm I'm not sure that that. I, Hopefully, I'm not. Hopefully.
0: I'm, I'm, I know. I'm like, oh, now that I'm, I'm saying this, see what happens. But Netherlands, and particularly Amsterdam, is a really interesting one. And if you look at Berlin, the same thing. I've never been to Berlin, so I'm not talking from experience here. But this is what I've heard <laughs> that Berlin and definitely Amsterdam are two locations where if you were British you could get by without ever learning the the other language because they you're looking am I right with Berlin I was checking your faces yeah so there's a lot of people that go over there and don't know any other language but they they cope absolutely fine so I think that if you are coming to the UK and I don't know and you come from uh, Hong Kong and the only other language you know is English you could quite comfortably go live in Amsterdam or you could go live in, in Berlin which are probably two of the five big hubs in in europe that you kind of see people uh, looking at um the others being i think stockholm is another one that i see a lot and then dublin is the, the yeah. one i see quite a lot
1: it's definitely an opportunity for that i mean even um so i'm i'm very lucky i was raised in both of those countries so i actually happen to speak the lingo but i know i am the exception rather than the rule But I also have friends that have lived in both locations for a number of years. There's a really good friend of mine who lived in Amsterdam for five years, still doesn't speak a word, not one word of Dutch. And then I have another good friend who's Canadian and she's lived in Berlin now for five years and pretty much just knows, please and thank you. So everything from the banking apps to local municipality letters to all that kind of stuff, there is an English version available by and large. And most people, including the civil service, will speak English. What I will say, though, is that being able to do the basics in German really greases the wheels within yeah. Germany. Holland's really funny. So I do have an accent in Dutch when I speak it. And so even when I order something in a restaurant, for example, they will switch to respond to me in English. Super annoying. But at least I kind of make the effort. And also people around you then become more aware of you being able to speak it if people come over. But it, it is not a necessity. Like I say, there's there's quite a few um, that never had the opportunity to learn the language and then subsequently didn't have the time or or whatever. So absolutely, those places are very accessible. And I think, again, this argument is really only valid for non-EU. And interestingly, actually, the number of non-EU immigrants has gone up pretty sharply because not a lot has changed for them, for for people coming into the UK. So um, I think net migration is is up, actually, from those pools, whereas it's down pretty significantly. I think I read by about 100,000 people or so in the last year it's gone down from EU countries. I think that in itself will create, I think, a pretty interesting impact in terms of the talent that's available. But I don't think that would necessarily affect the non-EU talent pools within the EU, if
0: that makes sense. Yeah, it makes sense, makes sense. And I'm not condoning people moving to another country and never learn a language. I think that um can <laughs> things difficult, just pointing out that you could do.
1: No, no, you absolutely can. And I, I honestly think that's part of the joy of it because I think especially if you're a family person and if you have a partner who can take their role with them elsewhere you also want to make sure that it's not going to be a difficult integration for them I think with me you know I only have to consider my dog and my shoes like that's the only consideration I make when I'm going is like do you have a big enough truck but I think for people that have families or children like the integration is super easy and I think that is what makes these markets so appealing actually to the sort of mid to senior level predominantly British workforce I think that's why there's so many of us out
0: there and we've kind of touched upon it, but something that links into this quite well is repatriation. Do you think we'll start to see a shift in tech talent choosing to relocate outside of the UK? I know you were talking about a friend that was looking at doing it themselves recently. So
1: Again, I think this depends on the level, because also the level will indicate, the level in your career will indicate how easy it is for you to be sponsored to, to go abroad. but. I certainly think for your mid-level, so I'm talking people between 8 and 15 years experience here, I definitely think you're looking at a bit of an exodus coming up. However, I do think it's likely for your kind of sub-8 years or 20 years plus groups, I think it's, it's very likely for them to return because I can see the UK market in particular being a bit more attractive to them now. But that also coincides with what's happening elsewhere in the world. So if we look at Hong Kong, it's becoming a, for various reasons, slightly less attractive place to be. Um, If we look at the Emirates, there's certainly since I've lived out there, it's become more and more restrictive um, over time in terms of the balance that the government requires between Western or basically non-Emiratis and Emiratis within the workforce. And so getting a visa is becoming more and more difficult across the Emirates um, and actually also in, in Saudi Arabia. So sort of the Middle East is becoming more difficult. I think unless you are that really the top five percent of talent, that's becoming a more difficult place to be. And also when people look to change roles, it's a much smaller market. And so I do think we're likely to see repatriation from those markets, like I say, on the on the junior or or the very senior side, but I I think it's unlikely that the mid-level is looking to make a move at the moment. The other factor that's worth considering is we're obviously looking at cost of living. Um, and I, you know, Singapore used to be a huge hub. I mean, I, I was out there for, for a little while. And, and, you know, Singapore now is becoming less and less affordable, unless you are truly in the upper echelons of leadership. My friend that lived out there until recently, quite a, a chunky mid-level role, but still had to have two housemates to make it work financially. God, I've lived on my own since I was 19. I honestly can't imagine having two housemates, let alone, you know. So I, I am sort of cognizant of that when considering potentially repatriation, what is that looking like? And so I truthfully believe it depends on the market that they're currently sitting in. But I, I do think it's likely with some of the other restrictions, people may have been attracted to Berlin and and, and other places like that prior, but it, it is now more difficult. And so I, I think it is likely that we're we're going to see more people come back. But... My concern is actually for the people that graduate in the next five years, predominantly, in terms of where can they go. And I think also with the exit from the Erasmus scheme, I was looking at that and I have a lot of friends that took part in it. It it does make me a bit worried in, in the absence of an alternative, of course. Right. So in the absence of an alternative, what are we doing to make sure that there is still that exposure and that learning experience in the more formative years so that people have more opportunity thereafter. And employers like that. You know, I, I like seeing when people see these that they've had the opportunity or taken the opportunity to work or live abroad. I think it helps as our roles become more and more international. So, sorry, that's we're going off tangent, but I can go down this rabbit hole forever.
0: I'll try I not say to. I, I like a good rabbit hole. So <laughs> and I guess flipping that slightly on its head, you're, you're, you're leaving the UK, so uh, we're not yeah. going to judge you too much here. <laughs> So what what do you think the UK businesses should be doing a little bit more to attract that talent?
1: Well, I think there's a few different things. The more obvious things are offering sponsorship for people that don't currently exist in market. And these are more shorter term solutions. So offering sponsorship, looking to potentially become incorporated elsewhere. I know that two of the previous companies I've worked for now have offices in other European cities. So one of them opened up a a Paris and an Amsterdam office to kind of combat that potential issue with talent, also considering sort of a step up role for people. So there might be somebody who meets more like 70% of your requirements, how much of that can you train in house? Again, this will depend on the size of the the company that that you have and, and, and the capacity that you have internally to do so. But I definitely think considering those people that are not quite there, but have really a lot of potential can really help people be ready. A lot of companies are very London-centric, right? And so it, with us working from home, as we have for the last year, I also think, and I think somebody else said this on, on, on one of these podcasts as well, but again, looking at my time at Zigo, the, the tech team went remote first. And I think that's a really interesting way because not everybody lives or wants to live around London. You know, we, there's huge hubs of talent elsewhere in the UK. They might not just want, or they might not have the opportunity or whatever, they're not in London. And so I think that's also really important to consider, especially when we're all remote, we've now have business cases where it's been proven that we can all go remote and still be very effective in our roles. Consider people outside of your area. They now don't need to live 20 miles from the office. They can live really wherever. They can live in the northern most part of Scotland if they want to. They can still do the job as long as their internet's okay. So I definitely think that being a bit more flexible surrounding homework, flexible working times, and just locational uh, elements if they if they loosen up there I think actually that unlocks a little bit more talent that perhaps you wouldn't have had access to prior and well long term you're looking at re-education I I, lo- I looked at this earlier and I don't think it's just languages that we need to look into but home the talent in the absence of having a scheme where you're able to bring over people at all these different levels from various other countries is going to be paramount to being successful in the future, right? So you need to home grow that talent. And that might mean, yeah, there are companies that have been doing it within tech specifically for some time. But on just casting that net a bit wider, sponsor people through different courses, give people access to different either courses or, or just different exposures. You could look into more of a grad scheme. I know that's a bit more traditional, but something like that, making sure that, that we're giving people that exposure um, so that they can be competitive people then want to stay with your company because you've invested in them, right? So then they feel like they've been invested into. But certainly in order to be there longer term, the solution to not being able to bring or import everything is to make it yourself.
0: Yeah, and, and I know you, the, what you were talking about there about companies sponsoring through and uh, almost like the scholarship approach. I know you lived in Chicago for a bit, which is <laughs> a very American way about giving people scholarships and helping them through. So yeah. You've lived and worked in a lot of different countries over over your time. So, is there a particular country that you think is doing it well at the moment on that side?
1: Oh,
0: because <laughs> um... I, 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 without getting political, because I think there's a lot of things wrong with the US, but um, I think the US in a lot of way does do good work on fostering its own talent. If you look at the numbers of people that relocate outside the US, there's an element of "we are the best." That mm-hmm. is always the way with the American way, but um, they don't have a huge amount of people relocating outside the US compared to how many people want to come to the US. So mm-hmm. I think they actually do a really good job of fostering talent. But I don't know what your opinion would be, having lived there for a long time.
1: I definitely think there's pockets of it. I think because I mean, the US is obviously enormous. Yeah, so
0: it's monster, yeah. I think
1: yeah. So I I do think that there are pockets where. They do a really good job of that, but I also think that there are whole sections of society that they forget about or that don't have the access. So yeah, I think if you belong to a certain socioeconomic group, absolutely, the access and the sponsorship and the scholarships, by and large, those opportunities are afforded to you, and therefore you have even wider opportunities thereafter. But there are also large socioeconomic groups without that access, or it's based on your location. So my honest answer to that is no, I don't think there is one country that is leading the way. I do think there are individual sort of concepts from lots of different countries, however, that work really well. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, you you do see this in the Emirates. So there is more of a push in terms of education, uh, which is being sort of there's a, a push and pull effect here, because now they're pushing and they're really squeezing the number of visas that they're willing to give out it has forced this other behavior. Yeah. Now, is that the right way to go about it? I'm not going to get into that debate, but it is an interesting viewpoint on how you can home grow that talent. I think the US is an interesting one within sort of subsections. They have a really interesting approach to, for example, their veterans and giving the veterans access to additional education or like a retraining allowance. Yeah. Yes, I, I do think there are, there are concepts throughout different countries that are very interesting that provide you with a great platform to make sure that you are giving people the opportunity to switch careers or you're upskilling people so that they can do multiple different roles yes. but I don't think there's one place that's got it all figured out sadly otherwise we probably just copy them right we well, just go oh good great good. We'll, just, we'll just do that what can
0: you <laughs> so. a template, and I would like I'd send a blueprint to like Boris and be like Boris is like, is <laughs> hey
1: I've got it all figured out here it is they're doing it all right we'll just copy what they're doing
0: and as I asked that question I was like I've just said how great the US is and I thought you're in Chicago, South Chicago <laughs> from a economic background
1: yeah there's definitely areas of Chicago I definitely shouldn't have gone to and did and was just never allowed to go to but I, I also lived in New York and New York is relatively similar yeah I but I do think the divide between the have and have-nots in Chicago is especially apparent
0: yeah
1: I mean it's such an interesting melting
0: pot of people I, I love Chicago Chicago is one of my favorite cities I've ever been to right, not in winter So I am preparing a
1: brutal winter. I moved there just in time for the winter of 2013. And I thought I was going to die. It was so cold. And I showed up there full of just enthusiasm and just, oh my God, I'm moving to America. This is going to be so great. And I showed up with my UGG boots and a wool coat. And everyone said, no, uh, you need to go to the Columbia outlet or the North Face outlet immediately and buy a ski mask and, you know, a duvet coat and ski boots and... Um, they were right. Uh, two weeks later, I was frozen solid. But it, no, I mean, from a, a kind of an access perspective, though, Chicago is also really interesting. You have some great schools, Dude. a lot yep. of really interesting industry. I mean, it was where it was the lifeblood of the the print industry for a long time. But there is also a huge homeless
0: Problem yeah. Chicago. We're, go- we're going off of uh, recruitment topics here and just talking. Sorry. About- no, 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 no. I find this interesting. I'm sure a few people that listen will find this interesting. Like as you're going, if we're talking about the have or have nots, as you're going on the uh, on their like metros, essentially, I don't know what they call them in Chicago, but you can just see the homeless population. Like okay. I remember being on one, and there was just a guy laid across the um, seat sleep- sleeping during like just middle part of the day, he just got out of the cold. And yeah. we went we went to uh, a Cubs game, so a baseball game for anyone listening. And I remember turning up and being absolutely frozen and then seeing people on my way there that were homeless. I'm like, how are you coping with this? Because I'm, co- I'm I'm going into a stadium where it's fairly warm. It's still pretty cold, but it's fairly warm. Yeah, it's your life that you live like this. So,
1: yeah, it's, it's a it's a brutal place because it truly it has all of the seasons. So it's equally as unforgiving in the summer. Yeah. um as it is in the winter so it's uh it's it's a strange place but it's i mean it's not unlike san francisco san francisco certainly has a bigger homelessness issue but it is a it's it's just such a strange environment not that obviously we don't have it in lots of european cities because obviously we do but it's a it, it is a really really strange city but i absolutely love it
0: so i, I guess there's a final question what's your opinion on the future of hiring and i think mm-hmm. at this point let's look at this from a global scale because yeah i think it'd be good to look at it from that side as well
1: The future of talent, uh, well, talent will be less mobile. So I think that will push for this kind of the geolocational approach that I talked a bit about earlier for London specifically. As I said, we would look at a much wider remit and some companies have already started doing that. So we'll hire in Scotland, even though we're in London and so on. But I think actually we're we're looking at much more of that um, over time. So people will hire people in different cities across multi mega regions um so i think that will the location of the talent over time i think it's been accelerated by the pandemic not necessarily because of it but the viewpoint has been accelerated because of the fact that we've all been forced to work from home for a year talent is more mobile in that sense so we don't need to necessarily be in a particular place um and so i think that's that's quite an interesting shift for especially newer companies, I think that gives them more of an access to, or or smaller companies rather, or companies with smaller budgets, startups, et cetera. I actually Mm -hmm. think that creates more of an opportunity for them because it doesn't necessarily mean that you have to hire everybody in one place or you have to find them in London where obviously your talent will be more expensive Mm -hmm. or even in the bigger cities, right? So it just gives you a lot more freedom. But I also think that poses a lot more uh, of an interesting piece for the talent itself. So this will give access to people potentially who would not have had prior. So I, I think it's, it's it's good for both. I do think that will also then in turn create a more competitive marketplace, but again, at both ends, because there will be varying degrees of flexibility, right? So yeah, so much more of an open approach. I also think that home growing your talent for across the mega regions is going to become more important because of this sort of lesser mobility um, that we now face. And so I do think that Even though there are opportunities that are created within that, I do think there will be pressures on different areas of industry, et cetera, to make sure that there is kind of this education or support or access given to their talent in-house because it's more difficult to find it elsewhere or there is a skill set missing, such as a language that might become more relevant over time. So I think we're definitely in for, um, well, I think we need to be in for some education reform in some capacity globally. I do think there are markets that are going to suffer as a result of this sort of particular markets. And I know we've mentioned some of them. So like Hong Kong obviously is a bit less attractive. And I think that there are going to be some sort of some depression of of this influx of Western talent, if you want to call it that, into the Emirates, for example. So I do think that there are going to be markets that in the short term will see a, a structural change overall. But I don't know. I think my bottom line on talent is... I think there's a lot of opportunity that's been created by both the pandemic and what it's done to the way in which we work, but also some of our, let's say, political changes <laughs> um, that we've experienced globally over the past 12, 12 months or so. So I actually think there's there's a lot of opportunity that can come out of this.
0: That's nice. And uh, I, I liked your, your final line there where you... It to a very brief what we were talking about. I think the listeners will, will are saying. <laughs> cool. So we've got to the end of the podcast. Firstly, I want to thank you for attending. It's you. been one of my most interesting and enjoyable podcasts. So that's been really fun. But if people want to reach out to you afterwards um, yeah. to ask me any questions or anything like that, how is the best way to approach that?
1: Oh yeah, just um, just email me. I actually don't even know what my new work email is going to be yet. So let's do LinkedIn. my personal email. Yeah, well, yeah, of course. Duh. Yeah, so LinkedIn, me, absolutely. I'm usually pretty good at responding, but and then I'll I'll put my new email up on LinkedIn. So um, just please don't call call me because agencies keep doing that and I absolutely hate it. So please don't do that. But yeah, LinkedIn email. I'd love to hear from people, especially if they have more ideas about kind of the mobility of talent and how else to base people across different countries if you're a smaller company. Because I think that's where the bigger companies often sort of clean up. And, and I'd love to hear more about maybe how smaller companies are able to, to do that.
0: I'm going to have to ask this question before I, I do the sign off and give people the hack job email. You've already just started. How have people got your your number already to cold call you?
1: Honestly, so I have it on my LinkedIn. And then when people, when I accept people's requests, it's, I don't know, I think it ends up on a database and the number of like recruiters, like agencies trying to be like, oh, you know, I've got three Python developers that want to and I'm like, that's great. But have you read my profile in terms of the fact that I obviously don't hire anymore? So yeah, yeah. It just I get I get a lot of that. So please don't do that. Thanks.
0: Yeah, <laughs> please don't. So if you want to ask any questions to the hag job team, if you reach out to hello at hagjob.co. Thanks again for me your time.
1: Thank you.